Hello and welcome to George and Charlie off the bridle. Of course, with this being high summer, we're right into the turf campaign, but it's also approaching the heart of the cricket season. Fitting then that our guest for episode three from series three is Michael Holding, a man with an enduring passion for both sports. George Scott, Charlie Fellows and myself, Tony Rushmer, are reconvening for our latest podcast in partnership with Fitstairs, recording here at Eve Lodge Stables on the Hamilton Road. This, of course, is George's base in the heart of Newmarket, just a quick single away from the famous Gallops and a booming Fellows six-hit from the Rowley Mile course. No more cricketing links, I promise, but we will be enjoying the company of legendary fast bowler Michael Holding soon. Before we do so... Hey, chaps. Good to see you. Um, Royal Ascot, Charlie. Let's reflect on the Royal meeting. You went close. No winner, but you did go close. Yeah, good week. Good week. Frustrating week. No, not not frustrating. They ran very, very, very well. Um, Dubious Affair probably should have won, which would have been a remarkable win off quite a long time off the track in a very competitive race like that. So, But that was nice to see. She's back. She ran in the Northumberland Plate the other day, but... Ordinarily, I would never have run a... Yeah, I thought that was actually, as I alluded to in my column in the Racing Post, did you see that? No. No, I thought you just... I I thought you might call me. They said a horse to take out of the Northumberland plate, and I sort of... It wasn't a dig as such, but I just said it was (laughs) uncharacteristic for you to be backing up a filly so quickly. Oh, yeah, but it was was 150 grand handicap, and we were four pounds well in. No, no, I couldn't agree more. I had no choice, really. And I didn't want to run her, really, because she takes her races hard, and she's going to have to spend this week in a paddock because she's pretty sore as a result of two quick races. So I knew it was going to be a risk, but um, you never know if she had bounced out of the race and she's four pounds well in, you know, God, Nick, the the winner was you wouldn't have picked. So she, we were right to run, but it just she hadn't got over the race. And then what about v- Eve Lodge? Eve Lodge, we wanted rain, but not that much bloody rain. So Eve Lodge is obviously our filly and our syndicate, who we sold yeah. um, in the build up to Ascot. Yeah, and we're you know we're we're very. She's great. She worked this though. morning. She's got entries next week. Um, we're going to drop back to a novice get a confidence booster into her, hopefully win another 20 grand GBB bonus and then look for something nice, maybe a Lowther or something like that if she's good enough. Um, but she, it rained and rained and rained and rained. And although we wanted rain, we did not want that much rain and she just couldn't move her feet in it. Okay. And we're talking about a podcast horse or a horse who was a podcast uh, syndicate horse. Uh, another podcast syndicate horse, the one in your name, Charlie, ran for George the other weekend at... Chester, very, very close, but kind of sums up a bit of the luck of Eve Lodge at the moment. Second-itis, George. Yeah, second-itis. But, you know, this year the horses are healthy and, you know, that will change. But Charlie, yeah, Charlie ran a career best at Chester the other day and um, just from a, you know, from a wide draw. And, you know, it's a hard year, as we know, for these three-year-old sprinters. And I'm hoping we'll see how this year progresses, that he might establish himself as a sort of a really sort of solid Saturday handicapper and that my right honourable friend will... Worst worst bit of placing you'll ever see. Absolutely furious. Absolutely furious. We had this grand plan that he was going to drop down below 90, (laughs) run in the racing league races, 50 grand races, George. Fantastic. What's he going to do? Runs a 
freaking career best round Chester gets put up two to 92. <laughs> We've got no chance of getting the bloody races now. No, you're right. I, <laughs> it's a pain in the arse. I'm not going to lie. That's the um, horses, George. I don't want to dwell too much uh, on them at the minute because you did have a far more exciting night the other night when you uh, trooped off to Wembley to watch England beat Germany. Now, many of us haven't been in a crowd at a football match since, well, forever, basically, ago. Uh, what was that like to be at the home of football to see beat our old enemy in such thrilling fashion in a crowd of 40-plus thousand. Talk about that. It was fantastic. George has got a stonking hangover, so... so <laughs> he's, I he's absolutely knackered. Drunk, he's had, he drunk had on a, emotion. He had a cracking night at the football, and then I think they went wild afterwards as well. We wouldn't go wild, but when you sit down for dinner at 11.30, you know it's going to be a late one, especially when you... I was sat, I was sat at dinner, and obviously two great friends of mine, and then another friend. And I was like, right, I'm just going to go home. And he was like, well, where are you staying? And I was like... He's like, I was like, Newmarket. He goes, what? You're, you're going to Newmarket? It was like one thirty. Just couldn't get his head around that I was getting a cab back to Newmarket. But that's normal for me. Very it's normal. so normal. Exactly you just jump in an Uber and sleep all the way home and you're home in an hour and a half's time, yeah. hour and 40 minutes time. You go from the Uber to bed in, and wake up yeah, a couple wake of hours later. 5.15 and yeah. Uh, but it, no, it was an extraordinary evening, and um, it was a, it was pretty special to be there. It was actually a similar kind of vibe to Royal Ascot this year, in the sense you had the wonderful atmosphere, uh, people around, great bars, but uh, you know only at half capacity, three seats yourself, get as many drinks whenever you like, and just very civilized. But yeah, it was it was definitely. I mean, I I was I thought we were all very pleased with the result and the way England played, and you've come in and as always, you're swimming against the tide slightly. I don't think I'm swimming against the tide. I think you are. I think everyone's very, very pleased with how England are progressing. Oh, my God. By the time really? people people listen to this... We'll be in could, the semis. It, we, oh, we'll be in the semis. There we go. We'll, be, we'll absolutely breeze through next, We should next be in the semis, but we're just playing boring football. Okay, but, but, he's winning, but it's dull. And I cannot have... I, I, don't get me wrong. He's getting results. We've had four clean sheets. Very good. Well done. Well done, Gareth. But... I can't have a manager who's got Grealish, Foden, Sancho all sitting on the bench doing nothing and playing two holding mid... Like, let them loose. Yeah, Take them, uh... Don't win it 2-0, go and win it 5-0. Because you could do that to Germany. They are a crap side. Let's not get excited. Yeah, Germany are shocking. And I think a proper team with a, with a proper attack in that we have, and we do have it, we have got an unbelievable attack, could have taken them to yesterday here, here, here. but That's anyway enough. we're going to breeze on through to the final we're not going to face a proper team until no. we get to the final now no, and then we'll get taken to pieces come on that's enough football we have a cricketer about to join us Michael Holding will be here so let's call time on the football chat the final whistle shall we say and move on to cricket Michael, on behalf of all of us, thank you very much um, for joining us this afternoon before the boys get stuck in with some questions for you you're a renowned Newmarket regular each summer. So if you can just share with our listeners how and why you came to call this corner of Suffolk home each summer. First of all, Julia, thanks for having me. Oh, I have always enjoyed the horses. And of course, Newmarket is the centre for horse racing here in the UK. People down in Lambourne will be cursing now. But <laughs> <laughs> I used to own horses in Jamaica. The gentleman that trained my horses in Jamaica, his daughter got married to a Bayesian. As you know, that's what they call people from Barbados. That Bayesian knew Michael Stout very well. 
and I think 1985, I was at Derbyshire, and he called me and said, Mikey, would you like to meet Michael Stout? And I said, tell me where and when. <laughs> and so we made arrangements for me to drive down to Newmarket from Derby. He told me exactly where he was going to be standing by the Carlberg Stein on the Berry Road and all that. So I came down and I met Michael Stout in 1985. And he hasn't been able to get rid of me since. When, <laughs> when I started working for Sky, initially they paid all my expenses, airfare, accommodation, everything. And the boss at Sky, John Gaylord at the time, said to me, where would you like to live? I said New Market, and he was overjoyed because it's a lot cheaper in New Market than, than London. <laughs> so I started renting here in New Market. Then eventually I bought a house in New Market. So you know I've been here for thirty-five years now and going strong. And Charlie, you've known Mikey a while, haven't you? I've known Mikey a while mainly through Janet at yes, J at Fanshawe's. Uh, Janet is James Fanshawe's long-suffering. Uh, secretary, she's been there for years and she's great. She's but, but she's really good friends with Mikey. So he used to pop into the yard and come and lighten the mood whenever James was in a foul mood. So it's <laughs> what's got stuffed or something like that. Well, Janet initially worked for Salt. Yeah, exactly. And then that's where I knew her from. And yeah. then she went to, to to James. My lovely to have you. Thanks for popping in. Oh, my what, pleasure. Where that relationship start between you and Sir Michael? Obviously, you've become great friends. What was the sort of obvious? I mean, obvious connection was the racing and the cricket, but was it an instant connection between you two? Well, perhaps you could say it was instant because he's a big cricket freak, as you know. He loves yeah. cricket. He used to play quite a bit in his younger days, of course. And because I was playing with the West Indies cricket person and also a horse person, the friendship started there initially. We weren't as close. I was just somebody he had just met. He was somebody I just met. And of course, I used to visit the stable as much as I can. Sometimes I would stay with Jimmy Scott, who was a traveling head lad at the time. And the friendship just grew from there. You know, and from year to year, it grew. Initially, I wouldn't even go over to the house. I would just be in the, in the yard at the end of the day's proceedings. I'd go home. And then eventually he said to me, would you like to come for breakfast? <laughs> and I went for breakfast. And then it got to the point where he didn't have to ask me to come for breakfast. It was just automatic. So the friendship just grew over the years. It's lovely. I mean, obviously, Charlie and I um, know Sir Michael personally, but, you know, the, the wider audience wouldn't know him as well as maybe some other trainers. I mean, what, what's such so special about him as a, as a person and also an, you know, an incredible racehorse trainer and the career he's had? Well, what I discovered about Michael Stout initially was that he had a photographic memory. Really? He didn't have to write down anything. Of course, in the latter days, no, he, he keeps his notes. But initially, George, Michael Stout's notebook was his hand. I, I've never seen it, but I, I, I heard it talked about, but I, I've never seen it myself. He and used to write his notes in his, in his hand and, if, and he would think it was legible. And he'd run them out afterwards. Also, <laughs> if it was something that he didn't agree with or didn't like, didn't he like crumple it up and to chuck it away? Is that true? No, I'm, no, I've never, I've never seen no, him do okay, that. No, but no. he used to write things. No, and he would whistle, and then he would rub it out. As if nobody's going to see what I've written. <laughs> but he remembered everything. I even remember a conversation he had with a particular jockey. I won't name the jockey, but we're going back many years now. And the horse was going to run at Windsor. And he wanted the jockey to lead on this particular horse. And the jockey gave him an excuse for not leading. And he said, what a month ago you told me this? <laughs> Which was different from what the jockey was saying at this time. So he remembers everything. Or he remembered everything. I did not have to write down anything. 
when I first met him, he had like 150 horses that went up to about 200 at one point. And he would just stand by the horses that they were walking past and telling them what they were going to do without having notes. You're going to do this today you, without having notes. He's got an incredible brain, hasn't he? It's a huge brain. And he sends them to all far-flung parts of Newmarket. Yeah. So you'll get some on Long Hill, some on Warren Hill. You'll see a couple pop up elsewhere. And it's kind of like he somehow masterminds the whole thing. Yeah, well, these days he has to have his notes. He keeps he keeps on writing things down now, literally, not just in, in his palm yeah. of his hand. And of course, whoever has been his assistant over the last decade or so has helped him tremendously in that regard. No, yeah. James is whoa, the Whoa, 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 don't give him too much credit, Marky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's been more of a hindrance than a help. Don't you give James Horton too much credit. J- James Horton's uh, Sir Michael Stout's current assistant trainer and also your best best mate in town, really. Your, we go your way mucker. back. We've, we've known <laughs> yeah, each other since we were... Yeah, used to share a home together or a house together. We, we, yeah. we lived together at school from the age of 12 to the age of 18... Uh, in the same house, we lived together in Newmarket. We went travelling together, and again, I've known him for years and years and yeah, years. And he's yeah. a good man, and he's definitely he, luckily he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> probably because he refuses to. But uh, we won't I, acknowledge you. So I can say nice things. He's done an unbelievable job at, at Stouts, and he's got a new adventure coming his yeah, way in the shape of a well. private trainer up north. So that would be good. He's really excited about it. Well, I, I can imagine. He yeah. should be. You know, he spent quite a few years at Stouty and to go out on your own must be quite exciting now. Yeah. But Stouty has had good people working with him and James, of course, is one. Before him, he had Owen Burroughs. Because if you remember, Stouty got very sick a few years ago yeah. before James got there and he was pretty much out of the yard. I think he had gallstones or whatever the problem was. James, he was out of the yard totally and Owen Burroughs took over and ran it very well while Stouty was was out. Mm. So he has had good staff. And how how is the yard now? Because it has been a really, really tough year, especially over the winter where he lost his long-term partner, Coral. That hit Sir Michael. Very for, hard. Yeah. Very, very hard. And But he's slowly recovering. He He's getting back. Over the winter, I called him quite a few times and he could detect at times that he wasn't on top of the world. But he's slowly getting back there. Even when I came back in May, you'd hardly ever hear him coming and boom, 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 you know, his usual noises, but he's, he's getting back there. He's, you know, those things are not easy. It takes time. Now, we've talked about Sir Michael as a trainer. Over the years, you've got to know him very well as a man. We all turn on the television and watch him at the races, and he's kind of got that... He's almost secretive and slightly standoffish, and let's say he's not like Charlie and George when it comes to talking to the media. Yes. What sort of person is he away from the camera and away from the race course. Just tell us a bit about Sir Michael. Full of fun and frolic. You know, if you go for dinner with Michael, you're in a restaurant, even when Coral was alive and and was with us, Coral used to have to be the Michael, Michael, calm down, calm down, (laughs) because he'd be there and slapping the table. and He was always someone full of fun and frolic. He just doesn't like interacting with the press that much. If you notice when he gives his interviews, he, the third question he starts, like he said, <laughs> heading off. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, he, he is a huge sports fan as well, isn't he? Big time. It's not just a, a knowledge of racing. He's cricket, football, motor racing. He's he into has his remote control in his hand on a Sunday and he's flicking from one to the other. Because <laughs> he's watching tennis or F, F Formula One or back to cricket. He just flicks from one to the other because he loves all sports. And does he like to talk to you, obviously, about cricket? And does he very much like the sort of intricacies of 
cricket and the, the we have arguments all the while oh he should be batting at that number why right. why is he bowling this <laughs> no he, he gets involved in the street especially when Atherton and Alex Stewart were opening the, for England Oh, hell, he, he liked those two guys. He loved them at the top of the order. <laughs> Not as much as Greenwich and Haynes. No, well, he obviously, being born in the Caribbean and being a Caribbean man, yes, he will enjoy West Indies cricket because I've been on tour at sometimes and he'll call me. Sometimes we have a long, you think, oh, why is he up? He must be sleeping. No, he's listening. I might be in Australia or whatever. Why didn't the West Indies do this or whatever? But he loves his cricket and he loves his sport. So whether it's England or the West Indies, he's deeply involved. Mikey, since you've been involved with the arts since 1985. Yep. So in that time, you must have had some incredibly privileged access to some pretty decent gallops, and you've seen some special horses. Can you name a few that really uh, spring to mind? Um, King's Best is, is one that really comes to mind immediately. I mean, that's what a decade and a half ago, or a decade. 20 years ago, when 20, 20, 20 years. Wow, best. that's a long time ago. I saw King's Best do a piece of work on the Rowley Mile Gallops one day, and I was shocked. I didn't think this horse could work as well as he did. But as you know, he broke down in Ireland because I thought if he was as, as sound as some of the other horses that we know have done well, he would have done brilliantly. He would have been a great race horse. Yeah. But that's what you get when you have very good horses. They try to run too fast and they injure themselves. <laughs> from from a racing, you know, you've had access from the inside, isn't it? It's almost the most special part, isn't it? That that identifying a, a talented uh, horse early on in the gallops. When you see it's, them early on the gallops, yeah. George, and you think to yourself, yes, I would, hoping that they will develop and you follow them through their career. Yeah. Very satisfying. Isn't I, it? I don't own them, obviously, but still. You feel like you're I very much part. I feel as if I'm part. a part of them. Yeah. And... Do you like a bet? Oh, mercy. Is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> and where did that start? Where did that start? No, from Jamaica. Yeah. When, when I was a kid, I'm, I'm talking now before I got the double figures. I used to go to the racetrack with my brother. My older brother was six years older than I was, and his godmother owned horses. So I used to go to the racetrack with them from those early days. So I was infatuated with the horses from before I got the double figures. Yeah. And then when I went to high school, the friends at school into horse racing again. So I got more involved in horse racing. And then at the point at which I could have a bet and understand, I started having a little, as I, those days, those pound shillings and pence in Jamaica. I'd buy a horse, five shillings, buy five shillings, you know, <laughs> win and place to make sure if it gets beat, you get your money back. Because <laughs> my lunch money you're talking about, can't afford to lose my lunch money. <laughs> So it's always been the, the gambling, the fun element of the gamble has been part of the attraction. Yes, definitely part of the attraction, but not the only thing. You know, I can watch races and not have a bet. You know, you go to Dubai, you can't bet in Dubai, but I love watching the races. I love watching the animals because I love the athleticism of the, of the horses. But betting has to be involved. I love that as well. I love the challenge of finding a winner. And when I can go through the form and I think this horse looks good, and I back that all side wins, it gives me satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, of course. As a punter, there's nothing better than weighing up the form, evaluating it. Yeah. I'm right. Yeah, um, definitely. Mikey, we are all huge cricket fans, so I know we've got some cricket that we want to talk about. Sure. Um, firstly, England-India. What do we reckon, chap? So you, are you, uh, before we turn to the expert, which, 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 have you got a foot in, do you think we'll manage to turn it round after New Zealand de defeat? I don't think our test team's good enough. But the we've got no batsmen. 
I agree with you. When Stokes comes back, he'll help a lot. But yeah. the, the top of the order is shaky. And that's where, that's where you need a foundation. You need the top of the order to set some sort of foundation for the others to benefit. There's no Strauss, there's no Cook, there's no Vaughan, there's no Nobody. person you know is going to go in at the top yeah. of the order and almost guarantee you runs. Root's out of form at the moment. But Root might be out of form because of the problems he has around him. Yeah. If he got gets some stability around him, he'll be fine. He's too good a player to not get runs. And you, you, you're, you've been quite vocal in that you think this all stem. We, we at the same time that our test team is lacking, our one day team and our twenty twenty team are the best in the world. And you, you're quite vocal that that's the our being so good at twenty twenty and one day has had an impact on our test team, especially well, especially well, the top order. I wouldn't say it, it is the reason because I think you can be good at all formats. But I think the main focus these days on most batsmen, and I'm not just talking about England, is to be able to score runs freely. And that means they change their technique a lot because the emphasis is now hitting the ball. Emphasis is no longer staying at the crease. And you must have heard Bumble in the last test match. Bumble said it clearly. All the great players that he has seen, and Bumble goes back a long way, <laughs> they all have a defence. If you cannot defend your wicket, it's gonna, you're going to struggle to get run because you have to be at the crease to get runs. And a lot of these batsmen have no defence. All they do is look to hit the ball. More times than not, their left leg is coming out of the way so that they can get a free flow of the arm. That doesn't work in Test Match cricket. That sounds like you, George, when I saw you bat for Newmarket trainers. He's just sashaying down the wickets and they're quick. <laughs> that sounds your style. No defence. Um, sure. And, and Ollie Pope would probably be someone who may fit, fit what we're discussing because he looks fantastic. Yeah, when I watch Pope and he makes 30, you think yeah. he's class. Yeah. He's just well, he has a defence, no, you know. He has a defence. He, he looks to me like a fully blown proper batsman. But I don't understand why he doesn't get many more runs. Yeah, it must be the mental side for him because he's clearly got the ability. He's kind of come in as the next the guy to stabilise that top of the order, hasn't he? And it just really hasn't happened for him. Hasn't happened yet. Yeah. He's still young, so I'm, I'm oh, hoping. Of course. of course. Do you think the rotation's worked? Do you think we should have rotated or do you think we should have just... Because obviously it's been a very jam-packed fixture list this year. Do you think they should have just stuck with a team and just gone for the whole year? Or do you think that they the rotation system that they brought in was the right thing to do? I do have a problem with rotating your fast bowlers. I don't see why batsmen need rotating. I think your batsmen and your all-rounders can play all the time. You know, but we keep on hearing about the amount of cricket that is being played. But they allow them to play as much as they want in 2020 tournaments. We just had a series that some of the guys were unavailable or they were told they would not play because they were just coming back from the IPL. Is the IPL more important than test cricket for your country? But that's the direction in which we see the game going. I think the rotational thing this year obviously was just was keeping them in the bubbles as much as anything, wasn't it? I mean some of the, the professional sportsmen I know look they're they're playing at they're playing at a professional level, they're being well paid, they're representing their country, but you know, you've got to admire the, um, you know, these bubbles they've been put into, haven't they? Weeks and weeks away from their families, touring away from their families in, you know, not normal circumstances. It's been a tough, very tough year for everyone. And, and this has to be put in context, but it's... It has to be put in context. In context. And I wanted to remember what happened years ago. <laughs> when you talk about months away from your families, 
how did it work for you back in the day? You think you, do you think we were paid enough to take our families with us when we went on tour? Did you do you think the West Indies were paid for our families to come out at Christmas? That's that that what's happening now with this England team? No. no. If you went to Australia for four months, you didn't even have mobile phones to call home. Really? <laughs> you write a letter because you couldn't afford to call home. It's all a matter of what people are accustomed to and what people are willing to put up with. Sure. I just saw a, an article with interview of a famous ex-England cricketer talking about the old Ashes story is too long. When we went on tours to Australia, we got down there like late October, early November. We didn't leave till February. We came to England. First time I came to England, I think we landed May 3rd or 4th. We didn't even play a test match for a month. We started playing test cricket in June because we played every county. Yeah. Some, yeah. Every county. Every. Wow. And we played some counties twice. These days, these guys go in and the players played test matches one day internationals and they go home. Yeah. There's nothing to put up with. But they're accustomed to that now. So if they go somewhere for, for 10 weeks, they think it's too long. <laughs> Mikey's tour that you're talking about to England is 1976, which is my very first memory of cricket. And the first test I ever recall was at the Oval, and it would have been the end of that tour. And uh, Viv got, I'm guessing now, 291, I think. And Mikey got 14 wickets. And if anyone hasn't seen Mikey or that West Indian side, that is the match to go and watch on YouTube. Because... Well, it was for a start, it was a real hot summer, so the, ar the arid brown outfield, which we're not used to, but Viv strikes it to all parts, doesn't he? And, yeah, and Mikey, was that, I know you played for another 11 years, but was that the peak of your power, 14 wickets in that match, and it looked so easy? Statistically, Tony, not really, because 1976, I was 22 years old. What did I know about fast bowling at 22 years old? I was running and bowl fast. By the time I got to 26, 27, 28, then I knew enough about what I was doing. I still had a bit of pace and I knew what I was doing. The craft. Yes, the craft of bowling fast. 22, I was just running in. Zoom, zoom. <laughs> it looked pretty easy though at that time. Yeah, it, fast bowling was never difficult for me physically because I had a smooth run up and, and that sort of thing. So it, it made things a little bit easier. Not easy, but looking easier. And as time goes on, you learn more about the craft, though. You learn how to assess batsmen. You know, you learn how to bowl in certain conditions. At 22, you, you don't know all that. Does it amaze you that no one wore a helmet in those days? It, they came in very shortly afterwards. And in that side, there was Andy Roberts, who was rapid. There was you, who was rapid. And then coming through, there was Colin Croft. And then a little bit later, Malcolm Marshall. These guys were serious, including yourself, seriously quick. And yet, people like... Paul David Steele, Dennis Amis, Brian Close even, were going out without any protection. Does it stagger you that there no. wasn't more harm done or were the guys that good? They looked at the ball because they knew if they made a mistake, it could be dangerous. So they kept looking at the ball. Batsmen today, they're trying to play shots that they cannot play. First of all, everybody is a hooker now. Those days, everybody didn't hook because they knew they could not hook. They got out of the way, they ducked and they bobbed and weaved. These guys want to hook everything. If they did not wear helmets, they would bat better. But they are accustomed to it. I'm not telling anybody to take off a helmet because that is a modern game. And you wouldn't want people to get hurt. 
But in those days, people looked at the ball throughout. Even if they were ducking, they were ducking and looking at the ball. You see these guys now that they do that and turn their head and looking at the wicket keeper and the ball hit them in the back of the head. If you do have on a helmet, you're not going to develop those bad habits. Was that West Indies side, I'm talking mid to late 70s, early 80s, the best side ever to play test cricket or at least as good as the best Australian and the best Indian side of recent, more recent? I never tried to say best ever. I can only talk about what I've seen and what happened before 1971, first time I started watching test cricket, I wouldn't be able to judge. But I think that team that we played in the 70s and 80s was a very, very good team. We could beat any team in that era as we did. And I think shortly after that era, I would back us to beat them as well. The game has changed naturally. So that team to play today would have to make a lot of adjustments. But I think there was enough skill and quality in that team to make the necessary adjustments. Charlie, you were a fast bowler, weren't you, in your day? Back in the day, I don't like to brag about it, Tony, <laughs> but back in the day, I was pretty quick. Uh, I did, no, I bowled. I bowled at Leeds Uni, um, but... Bought for one of those pu Sunday pub teams. No, I actually bowled for the twos at Leeds Uni. I was a That's good player. Incredible. Were you in the first at Radley? Yeah. Were you? Mm. For a, a couple of years, or...? I didn't play in the last year because I had a very suspect action. <laughs> Oh, what, you were banned? When the umpires turned up, you had very suspect action. That's amazing. What, they just, they, yeah, you loved it, did you? Yeah. And then I started playing at uni again, and then I did my shoulder, and I, I didn't play in the last year. But Charlie, please tell Mikey about your net with, with Hoggard. That's one of my favourite cricket tales. Yeah. Yes, come on. <laughs> this is good. So, for my stag do, yeah. my best mate and I opened the bowling at school together, uh, and... He was my best man, and for us, for my stag do, he organised for us to go up to Leeds, which is where I was at uni. Okay. And we went up to Leeds, and one of the like one of the activities we did was we went to Headingley, where we had a net with Matthew Hoggard, and so we played a game. We were all in the nets with Matthew Hoggard, and it was just a, a lot of fun. And yeah. we'd had a drink on the train on the way up there. Anyway, the finale was that me as the stag had to face an over from Hoggard. Now, I was a number 11. I could bowl a bit, but yeah. I was a number... I could not bat. I was not a good batsman. But I like to think I could, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I went in, I wore every pad that anyone could possibly <laughs> find me. And he, so he bowled an over. The first, the first ball, he bowled very nice outside off stump. And I, actually, I promise you, this is not a lie. I played a beautiful cover drive and he, you know, second time he did exactly the same thing and I did it again. And I think the third, I think I hit three, literally just beautiful cover drive. Yeah. Where they came from, I don't know. Probably adrenaline. <laughs> and But he at this point, he was pretty pissed off. So he then dug three in short, Whoa. proper ones. The first two missed me, luckily. <laughs> and the third one, I sort of went back to town leg side and he followed me. Followed and he caught me <laughs> right on the hand, sort of up here by my chin. And it hurt. It was... Um, <laughs> It was very sore, but it was good fun. Did it break the digits or did the digits survive? No, I don't survive? know, but it was, it was, um, yeah, it was pretty painful. Which brings me to one last story. Mikey played a bit of cricket um, for the Newmarket Trainers Eleven before your time. And I don't know if this is uh, true or not, but someone said that when Mikey was playing, he was pretty generous to a batsman. The opposition had come off four or five paces. But 
much in the way that you gave Hoggard a bit of treatment, someone took a shine to Mikey. Mikey lengthened his run-up a little bit and castled this guy. Now, I'm not sure if that was someone just telling the truth or, or, or there's a bit of urban myth about that. Is that there anything? twice, actually. <laughs> that happened twice. And uh, Hagas was the instigator for one. He came, come on, Mikey, you can't let the man be playing shots like that. <laughs> it was a Haggis. Haggis, yeah. <laughs> So did you just lengthen the run-up? and? Uh... No, I didn't actually lengthen the run-up. I just... Put a bit more effort in the right, when the right arm came over. <laughs> and you got your man. Yeah, the stumps went cartwheeling. And talking about stumps going cartwheeling, there's a very famous picture of Mikey kicking stumps in New Zealand. <laughs> now, tell us, you, laid back, Mikey holding, kicking stumps over. It didn't quite fit the image that we have now. What happened to set what, you off? What you have to remember, Tony, is 1980. That's 41 years ago. I'm laid back now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As a fast bowler, I wasn't that laid back. A few people can give you some instances when I lost it on the cricket field. Unfortunately, we didn't have much referees those days. But that particular incident was just perhaps the fact of the matter was the tour was a very unhappy tour. The decisions just kept on going against the West Indies and I just got fed up. I got fed up and lost my cool and... The right leg got out of control. It's a great picture. Yes, it, and I'll tell you something. The story is that the guy who took the picture didn't even recognise what he had taken because apparently he was not a cricket photographer. Okay. His newspaper apparently just told him to go to the ground and take some pictures. And he was taking pictures. And when he went back to his office or the newspaper, this is the story I heard. They said to him, what have you got? He said, oh, I don't know. Here's the film. <laughs> And amongst it, that was the, the classic image. Amongst that, there it was. And so you said uh, that you you're now a laid back guy, but in those guys, you were you could lose your temper. Were you a proper nasty fasty, or were there? I always thought Andy Roberts was the real, or Colin Croft was. Colin the real. Croft was a nasty fasty. Colin Croft would bones his mother. <laughs> <laughs> I I I wouldn't want to spear people. I wouldn't be like. Not bowl a bouncer because I, I figured the guy couldn't handle it. I would bowl a bouncer to anyone. But I didn't like the idea of people getting hit, someone getting hurt. That that wasn't my idea of whether it's test cricket or any kind of cricket. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to bowl a bouncer. I just hope that when I bowl a bouncer, you, you either try and hook it and get out caught or you fend it off. Or I'm not bowling bouncers to hit people. I don't enjoy that. Well, who was the fastest of the, of the bunch? Is there one that you... Andy, initially, when I started playing for the West Indies, 75, Andy was quick, Andy was rapid. Then when Andy started to slow down a bit, I took over from Andy. But I tell you, someone who was rapid that people didn't quite appreciate his pace, Patrick Patterson. Patrick Patterson came when I was on my way out. And he was rapid. We played for Jamaica together. Look at this bowling attack for Jamaica. Patrick Patterson, Courtney Walsh, opening the bowling. I am first change. <laughs> <laughs> and we had another guy, another guy who was reasonable pace, Aaron Daly, reasonable pace as, <clears throat> as well. So that was a four-prong pace attack for Jamaica. Wow. And, and those guys, when you talk about pace and we see pace bowlers now, were, were your guys right up there, 90 mile an hour of clicks? Of course. I'll tell you something. Some of these boards that I see, they say are 90-odd miles an hour. If they are 90-odd miles an hour, Jeff Thompson in particular bowled 110. I'm telling you, Tony, if those boards that I see them saying... 90 odd miles an hour. Thompson, that man was rapid. He was rapid. 
And I, I was young at the time, and you're impressionable when you're young, but talk to Bib Richards, talk to Lawrence Rowe, talk to Clive Lloyd, they'll tell you. Jeff Thompson was rapid. I like to think of you guys staying friends because there was something about that West Indies side that every neutral loves to look back on. Are you, are you, are you still in touch with some of those guys? Most of the guys, most of the guys, not everyone. Andy and myself have been bosom buddies from 1973. He was 12th man for the Combine Islands at the time. I was 12th man for Jamaica. And we sat on a, a bench like this watching the game. And we're, that's where this friendship started. And we have been friends ever since. He was best man for my wedding. I was best man for his wedding. And we have been in touch. A lot of other guys I keep in touch with regularly. Desmond Haynes. Um, I have him on WhatsApp. Jeffrey Dujan in Jamaica. Gordon Greenwich. We keep in touch regularly. But I would... Because we are from different islands, it's difficult to have the relationship that you would like and you go for dinner or lunch. We don't have that because we're from different islands. Bayou, biggest racing fan among the cricketing fraternity, not just West Indies, but biggest racing fans that you, you, you would talk horses with uh, in, 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 your, in your game? Well, I wouldn't be able to talk horses with a lot of the overseas guys, you know, the guys who didn't play for the Caribbean. Now, I know... Quite a few of them were interested in horses, but in the West Indies team, Larry Gomes was the next big horse guy. Another guy from Trinidad named Harold Joseph that didn't play a lot for the West Indies, but he went to Australia once. He toured with us to Australia once. Big, big horse guy. And of course, we had a manager who was big in horses and then he became a pastor. The Reverend Wes Hall. But before he became a Reverend, Wes was big into his horses because his son was a jockey. Oh, okay. Mm. He was a fast bowler back yeah, in the day. In back in the 60s. 60s. In yeah, yeah Wes Hall. Played with Gary Sobers and those yeah. guys. Oh, there you go. My dad yeah. talked about him. Wes Hall and Charlie Griffith, it was. Yeah. Um, move, moving on. Um, Charlie mentioned this to me, and it's important to mention it. You, you, you've also, as well as you're commentating, you, you've been writing of, of, of late. There's a book out this this summer that you've published? It came. The publication date was the 24th of June. So it's out now. It's available now. And the yes. book is called? Why we kneel, how we rise. It's all about racism, Tony. It has nothing to do with cricket. It stems from what I said on Sky last year's summer down at Southampton. And with a lot of prompting from various people, I decided to do the book because that was not my intention. What, what, what I had said on Sky, I thought that was the end of it. I had moved on. But Thierry Henry was the first person to call me, actually, and said to me, Mikey, he saw me on Sky News afterwards the next day. And he said, Mikey, I feel your pain. We need to talk. And we had a good long chat on the phone that day. And then other people started to get in touch. Naomi Osaka got in touch with my ghostwriter through some agent or agency or whatever and said, I need to speak to that man because she identified with what I spoke about with my parents because her mother being Japanese, her father being a black Haitian, and with my mother being a brown Jamaican, brown-skinned Jamaican, and my father being black and the problems that they had, and she identified with that and she said, I want, I need to speak to that man. But again, even at that point, I did not intend to write a book. But the constant bombardment from these people and from everyone, I decided, you know what? Let me go ahead with the book. So I got back in touch with Thierry. He said, no problem. I'll contribute. Naomi Osaka contributed. Michael Johnson, Usain Bolt, Hope Powell. One of the most important people that contributed to the book, though, a lot of people wouldn't recognize his name because he's not a big star. He's a headmaster of a school, Jeff Harriot, headmaster of a school in Manchester. And I needed to talk to him because what I'm trying to do with the book is to educate. 
he being an educator, I needed to talk to him to discuss the curriculum at schools and how to go about things like that. And he, I think if people read his chapter, they'll recognize what I'm talking about, about education. That interview, um, we've all seen it. I don't think I've been affected by an interview quite as much as the no, one that Mikey gave last summer. Uh, how, how do you, when you reflect on that, how, I wouldn't say proud, but it's it an important interview, Most probably the most important piece of broadcasting that you've actually done in, in your 30-plus years behind a mic. Uh, how do you reflect on, on that now, a year on? Yeah, well, if, if that has an impact, if, it, if it, that and the book has the sort of impact I'm hoping for, <clears throat> All those wickets and all those test matches that I won will be a distant last compared to that. Because, Tony, I have made so many great friends all over the world, all different races, all different colors, all different creeds. The biggest problem in the world is racism and injustices. And if that, what I said, and this book can have a positive impact where that is concerned, I'll be the happiest man ever. I haven't got much time left on this earth, but I'm hoping for better in the future, that people can just see each other as people and forget everything else. Well, we hope to hear you on Sky Sports and see you in and around Newmarket for many years to come, don't we? And we just, on our behalf, want to say thank you to Mikey for coming by. It's been been amazing and brilliant. Charlie, George? Uh, yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, and I think the perfect way to round it off. Really, really, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, my We've pleasure. enjoyed it so much. Yeah, no, it's a real real treat, Mikey. Thank you so much. You're about Good the only you. person that could follow to Mark, so that's <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back for the final section of off the bridle uh, brought to you in partnership with Fitstairs our sponsor who will be at Goodwood this year they are in owner and trainer for the rest of the season as the Fitstairs club now George you had some fun with Fitstairs uh, at Glorious Goodwood and I should imagine there'll be a popular fixture the Fitstairs club at Goodwood it seems like a perfect match doesn't yeah, it yeah no no they're great and actually I've been really enjoying them that's them on a Monday evening they've got a box at Windsor and you know very open-minded if anyone's a around and like to go out for a drink and uh, he sponsored the whole card card on the Mondays and you know we're very grateful for them for that and yeah Goodwood they've got some great events lined up at Goodwood so they sponsored it's the race in which you finished second again the other oh, night as well with Sarvan we nearly won the Fitstairs supports the Off the Bridal podcast with a second beat in the head quite, quite tedious okay runners uh, for the next few days and weeks chaps I'll start with you George what have you got I, um, I'm looking forward to getting some of these two-year-old fillies out. We've only run one two-year-old this year just because they're quite a sort of late maturing. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to injecting some new blood into this season from the stable because obviously we've got a few handicappers that are very much in the grip of the handicapper and as subsequently they're running their races, but they're quite hard to get their heads in front of. So from my point of view, to see some new horses, some new horses especially the fillies. Name a two-year-old filly. I like Miss Tricks. So it's um, a um, Vadimos filly, who's so nice. But we've probably got eight or nine two-year-old fillies who are nice seven-fold or mile-and-a-quarter fillies for next year. Yeah. And what about you, Chaz? Well, I'm delighted to report that I, from the next time that we record a podcast, I will no longer be that trainer who has never trained a group winner in Britain because oh God, I'm you going to win a group race up. next week. And I cannot wait. I'm counting down the days. I'm firing two bullets at the race and one of them will win. I don't know which one will win. I didn't want to run them against each other because I just didn't want to Let run them. Let me guess. Yeah. Onassis. Correct. The dream. Correct. Who wins? 
Over six. Onassis, you're finally running her over the right trip again. She's a six furlong filly. Do you think so? Yeah. Her, well, her, her over argu- seven. Arguably, her uh, best uh, performance was over six. Yeah. The, the, the form guys were going mental about her sectionals. I think Onassis, I think she probably just needed that comeback run, you know? Anyway, one of them will win. So you can, you well, can make be, up that There'll night. be prices. <laughs> they're not going to be favourites. It's a group three fillies you're only not. race. They Some won't. They're, they're both rated 107. They'll be. I would have thought they'll be nearly favourites. You think? I think so. Fair well, Nassis ran a blinder at Ascot. Clearly didn't stay. For Dream was third in a red hot jersey. I'm guessing, Charlie. This is the summer stakes we're talking about. Anastas will definitely run. I haven't decided 100 percent about the Dream, but I th- annoyingly, I was thought I was being really clever. She's run four times and I'd forgotten that the rule is three. I thought I was going to drop her back into a novice and really piss some people off at Doncaster. Uh, but she's not allowed to run, irritatingly. So, uh, And I've got no other options for her unless I wait for the oak tree at Goodwood. No, you crack on. Is she going to be quick enough for that sharp six or pretty speedy six on the Knavesmire? I think she. I think, I think she's pretty quick. I spoke to Jamie today and I was, we were running through options and he said she won't get tap for toe. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. Jamie but, will ride, Jamie will ride her and Hayley will ride, ride the other one. Yeah, so. Pinning you down, chaps. Charlie, a horse to follow before we reconvene for episode four. Who are you putting up? Horse to follow or a horse, horse that will win. win? Before we reconvene. Before we our next... Winners. Yes, winners. Before our next... I'm saving them all for the racing league. I've put them all away. Uh, what will win before then? A horse called First Hurrah will win. The first hurrah, she is a little sprinter, filly. She ran really well at Nottingham recently where she didn't handle the horrible undulations, finished second. She's taken ages to come in her coat, but she looks fantastic now. Summary, she's really blossomed. She will go to either Wolverhampton, Catterick, or somewhere else next week. Can't remember what the third option is. And she will be very hard to beat. That's your Bedford House winner, Eve Lodge winner, George. Uh, Monday, Windsor, Tribuna, you, you fitzy. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Right, well, that's us for episode three of series three. We'll be back in a couple of weeks or so. Maybe the so bit applies after the break from episode two to episode three. Apologies if you've been waiting for this one. We will try and get back sooner rather than later. Thank you to our long-suffering producer, Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. Big, big thanks to our partners, Fitstairs. Many, many thanks to our special guest, Michael Holding. Please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you are listening to us on iTunes, give us a positive review, preferably five stars. And also follow us on Twitter at Bridal Podcasts. On behalf of George and Charlie and myself, Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Goodbye.